11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another, as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The word of the Lord. All right, as you guys grab a seat, let me just, as the kids staying in here, they're going out, right? Kids, okay, going out. Miss Robin in the back. Y'all can head that direction. The rest of us, if you brought a Bible with you, let me invite you to open it to uh, 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 4, towards the, uh, towards the back of your Bible, if you're uh, new to uh, the actual Word of God. I'm not sure how many people actually use the actual, you know, paper Bibles anymore, but um, I still do. And uh, anyway, I'm excited to uh, dive into God's Word. I'm, exi- I'm excited our camp, uh, camp campers are, are back. I know my uh, crew, they were exhausted coming off uh, this last week. They're catching up on sleep. All the things, many of you, uh, same thing. It, I went for one, one night to camp, and I was reminded that they have things at camp that start at 11 o'clock. They, they start at 11, and I'm like, I am just too old uh, for this. But hear my heart, I love camp, and uh, it's something that seems a little bit weird for me. At least friends tell me that, um, and here's why, because God, God has shown up at camp in my life. Uh, I was saved at a camp uh, called Ministry Confirmed at camp. A lot of Ashley and I's uh, dating relationship as we started talking to each other. We served alongside at, at camp. As a youth pastor, I would bring these kids to camp, and God would just do the miraculous. And it's not that God can't speak outside of camp. It's that normally we don't listen for him. He's, he's speaking all the time. But camp seems to remove the distractions a little bit. And we put our phones up and we, we pray, God, would you speak to me? So I'm excited uh, that our kids and our teens got, got a chance to go. We are uh, continuing in 1 Peter chapter 4. And we're going to talk about culture today. Because that's what Peter uh, brings up. And it's really one of the themes of First Peter, that we are a different culture. When I say culture, defined is how we do things around here. You understand that, that you have a culture even of your home, of how you do things around here. Some of you are formal dining room kind of people, and uh, you sit around the, you sit around, the, is that me? Is that me or the Holy Spirit? What is that? Is that? Check, check, check. We'll keep going. I'll grab that mic if I need to. 
Uh, some of you are formal dining room people, and uh, several nights a week you sit around the formal dining room. Some of you have never, you have a formal dining room, but you've never used it as a place to eat. You, it, it carries your laundry, uh, you stick things on it, it's where you put your dog when he's bad, whatever it is. Uh, that's what the formal dining room, some of you have changed your formal dining room into something else. Some of you are, uh, grab a plate and sit on the couch in front of TV people. Some of you are everyone fends for themselves kind of people, and you eat whenever, you, we, we all have a little that's just one slice of kind of how we do things around here. It's kind of the, the culture of, of your home. And then, and then there's the culture of where we live. We have a unique culture here in Louisiana, especially North Louisiana, because we've got all the influences from South Louisiana, and we have crawfish boils and, 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 and the like, and we know how to say boudin, and you know, this is, this is, we know this. But we also are kind of close enough to Texas where we know what good barbecue tastes like, right? And so we're kind of in this weird, and we say y'all, and, you know, we own a cowboy hat or something, even though many of us have never ridden a horse. But we're, we're kind of in that weird. And then we have a culture just in the South, just in general. There's a way we do things around here. Coined Southern Hospitality. There's a, you know, when you go up north and you're riding a subway, people don't want to talk to you. When you're in the, when you're in the South, if you bump into someone you say oh sorry my bad if you're in the north and you bump into someone they might punch you in the face it's just a there's a difference right even I have this thing and I don't even realize it I've grown up in the south my whole life and we have this slang maybe it's just me I, I think I've heard other people say this we have this slang if we if we are about to go do something we say I'm fixing to go do it and I always thought that was just normal, and then we have shortened from about to fixing to to fitna, right? The fitna. I'm I'm fitna go do this. And just a couple of weeks ago, I was in California, and I was giving this little talk to some church planners, and I said something about fitna, and they looked at me like I was speaking Greek, and I could see I was like, did I did I say something wrong? They, you, they said, what is fitna? Fitna means that in just a few moments, I'm about to go do something. I'm finna go eat lunch. We, we have this thing, right? This is, this is the way we do things around here. And this is what Peter's drilling down in. He's talking to Christians who have been pushed out of their cities. They are living, some of them as homeless people. Some of them have been pushed to uh, the, the outside of a society. They are, they are literally pushed out. They're in a unique and strange culture. They're not accepted uh, in that culture that they live in. They're not from there. Uh, they've been pushed out of Rome. And on top of that, now these are believers. They've got within them the Holy Spirit who is even leading them to a completely otherworldly kind of way of life. And so Peter is drilling down. And in the past three or four chapters we've looked at, this is what we've seen. Peter calls them the elect exiles. God's blessed and favored people, but not in a place where God rules. They're under the subjugation of a foreign enemy power. They're elect exiles. They're God's people, but we're not living in our heavenly home yet. We're, we're living in a place that looks far from heaven. And as a matter of fact, the way we live, Peter's going to say, as God's special possession should point the rest of the world to what heaven will look like one day. The, the way we interact and love each other and care for each other and forgive each other and extend hospitality even to the stranger, we're going to get to it in a minute, should be this little glimpse of heaven. 
Look at verse 2. This is the first culture, the culture of righteousness. He says in verse 2, let's go verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Things are going to be difficult, what he's saying. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The culture of righteousness. And you hear righteousness, it's a churchy word. It just means rightness. Now that you are right with God, your relationship with God has been restored through the death, burial, resurrection, and your confession of Jesus on the cross, right? Your relationship with the Father has been restored. You are now right with him. And now Peter is saying, no longer are we going to live for the flesh, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer. We're not doing that anymore. But instead he makes the turn for human passions. Uh, for human passions, but then he makes a turn for the will of God. This is what righteousness is. In other words, we don't really belong here. We're citizens of another country. We have a heavenly home. We're just here for a little bit, but we're going to do good. We're going to give people a taste of heaven even here while we're here. Some translations say that we, we're strangers, we're, we're odd, we don't really fit in. That's because we're tuned into something different. And when we're tuned into what God's doing in the world, what Jesus is calling us to, it produces a different kind of culture. This is what is so confusing to the watching world, especially in the West, that we have many people in churches that call themselves Christians and say that they've walked with God for a long time, yet they look more like the world than they look like Jesus. When you even get up close to them, there is nothing remarkably different about them. A couple years ago, I went to speak to the FCA at, uh, at Ben High School. And I walk in, and you know we're in some teacher's classroom, and all the kids start pouring in, and I'm going to give a talk. And the guy, I guess the moderator or whoever's going to get the meeting kicked off, I guess he's one of the officers, he gets up and he starts talking, hey, we're going to get this thing started. And one of the kids blurted out from the side, one of his buddies that was trying to out him, and I forget the guy's name. He said, hey, hey, why don't you, why don't you, why don't you tell the pastor the joke you just told me right out in the hallway as to out him for his hypocrisy. I'm not saying we don't stumble, but I'm saying that is, a, that is a really normal way of life, that we would say one thing with our mouth, but our life does not back that up, and that should not be so. That's why, that's why the world is so confused by the church. Are you just another social club? Are you just another religion? Because they've not seen a group of believers, many of them, who are really living in this different kind of culture, in this kingdom culture. He says in chapter 1, I mean chapter 2, verse 10, that once you were not a people, but now you are a people. You used to be the no mercy people, and now you're the mercy people. And you've done that because God has placed his favor on you and called you out unto him to make you a different kind of people. And this is the invitation, the reminder from Peter's pastoral heart. He says, listen, we don't live like the Gentiles. Gentiles just meaning in this sense, the people of the world, we don't, we don't live like that to just follow their human passions. No, 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 no. He even lists some of those human passions. 
Verse 3, for the time that has pa- is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. They live in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. This is how they live and this is how you used to live. With respect to this, the people that you used to hang out with on the weekends and do all the weekend things and now you've been changed by God and now you don't do those things, it says in verse 4, they are surprised that you don't join them with this same flood of debauchery. And because, because of some conviction and what God's calling you to, he's called you up. He's called you his chosen people, his special possession. Because of that, you now, there's a division between the way you live and act, what you love and desire and pursue, and the way that they live and act, the things that they worship and chase after. And they're surprised when you don't do this. And because they're surprised, they don't know what to do with you, so they malign you. They speak slander about you. They don't understand you. They misunderstand who you are or what you're doing. They call you names like Goody Two-Shoes and Bible Thumper and all, all the things. There's probably new names. That's, that's something that I'm, <laughs> I'm familiar with. This is what he says, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Now he's touching back a little bit on what was said in the end of chapter 3 when Jesus does some weird thing in between his uh, death on the cross and his resurrection when he goes in and gets the keys to hell and something like that and we don't understand fully exactly what all that means and it feels like in a way Peter's not trying to make that point the point that he's making in verse 6 is that the gospel is preached even those two are who are now dead those who are now dead the gospel is preached to them and they're going to be judged in the flesh the way people are so that we all of us might live in the spirit the way God does the culture of righteousness, a holy nation, he would call us, God's special possession. This is such a great reminder because sometimes life in this world, we forget who and whose we are. This is why the gospel is so powerful. This is why it starts with all that God has done to be with us and to love us. Why most of Paul's letters start with who you are in Christ before it ever tells you how you're supposed to live. See, religion teaches us that our function determines our worth and identity. Whatever you can contribute, whatever you can store up for yourselves, whatever name you can make for yourself, as you go and strive and produce, then that tells you who you actually are. But the gospel teaches us that our identity and worth doesn't come from what we do with our function, but it, it's determined by God. Only God can determine your identity. Only Jesus can tell you who you are. God spends so much time, especially to the writers of the New Testament, just reminding us of our identity, of who we are. And friends, even in this room, I feel like, even myself, I forget this. I forget the the stain of the world is just all around us, and this becomes the normal way of life, and we forget what God has called us to. 
I was reading this. This author, Neil Anderson, put this together. I'm going to go through it. And it's a lot of slides, so I want us to be ready. This is going to take us a few minutes, and we're going to go quick. And you don't have to take notes. I can send you this all in a PDF form if you really want this. This is about one-tenth of what the New Testament says speaks only to our identity. New Testament says a lot of things. This is just about who the Christian is. When he places faith and trust in Jesus, when the Holy Spirit comes and invades his life and sets up shop, we become a different kind of people. Romans 12 says we become a, a transformed, the word metamorphosis. We, we actually take on a different culture. This is who we become. I want to go through these. And I'm not going to read all the uh, scriptures, but it says in starts John 1, 12, that I am God's child. As a disciple, I am a friend of Jesus Christ. I have been justified. That means declared righteous, right with God. I am united with the Lord, and I am one with him in spirit. I have been bought with a price, and I belong to God. I am a member of Christ's body. I have been chosen by God and adopted as his child. I have been redeemed and forgiven of all my sins. I am complete in Christ. I have direct access to the throne of grace through Jesus Christ. I am free from condemnation. I am assured that God works for my good in all circumstances. I am free from any condemnation brought against me, and I cannot be separated from the love of God. Amen? I have been established, anointed, and sealed by God. Do you see the promises of God? I am hidden with Christ in God. I am confident that God will complete the good work that he started in me. I am a citizen of heaven. I have not been given a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. I am born of God, and the evil one cannot touch me. I am a branch of Jesus Christ, the true vine, and a channel of his life. I have been chosen and appointed to bear fruit. I am God's temple on earth. I am a minister of reconciliation for God. I am seated with Jesus Christ in the heavenly realm. I am God's workmanship. I may approach God with freedom and confidence. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Amen? This is one-tenth. We could do the whole sermon just line by line. Every biblical author inspired by the Holy Spirit just bent on us understanding who we are. Notice none of these were even from, from 1 Peter. First Peter has at least 25 different things that he reminds us of who we are. This is what I'm talking about, the culture of righteousness. Church, if this is who we are, then let's act like this. Let's act with boldness and confidence before the throne of grace. Let's not cow, cower down in fear. Let's not let the enemy heap shame and guilt upon us. I feel like we need to do that again. Y'all not talking back to me at all. I slept three hours last night. I'm going to need a little bit more participation. This is the culture of righteousness. Now, Peter, again, has mentioned this in every chapter. Peter would say, Paul would say, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. No longer like the way you used to. Every Christian has a no longer story. Right? I love this in, in verse 2 where he says, there's two time fr frame references in verse 2. So live the rest of the time, your life now forward, the rest of your time, not in the flesh for human possessions before the will of God. The rest of the time and then no longer. Do you see that? No longer like that. 
Everyone in this room who is a believer in Jesus should have a no longer story. I used to live like this, but no longer. This is the way that I used to operate, but no longer. And for some of us who came to Christ as a really young, at, at a really young age, and we got a jump start in growing into the likeness of Jesus, sometimes that no longer our story is far in distance. And amen for that. Some of us, though, we came to Christ after living for ourselves for so long, we, we remember the no longer. And the enemy loves to bring up those things that are in the no longer. He loves to say, well, how, how, can you, how can you say that? This is who you used to be. Exactly, this is how I used to be, no longer. I'm no longer that person. The dividing line is when Jesus came and adopted us into his family and we placed our faith and trust in him. Now we move from the no longer to the rest of time. For the rest of time. Listen, your past does not define you. It doesn't. Your divorce doesn't define you. Your mental illness doesn't define you. Your hangups doesn't define you. The way you think you failed as a parent doesn't define you. Your kids don't define you. The abortion you had doesn't define you. No, those things do not define you. That's the no longer. This is, this is the no longer. And now we're going to make the turn for the rest of time. So when we can look at our lives and we can be embarrassed sometimes at the way we used to live. Listen, that was, that was covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And he is fully sufficient, friends. This is the no longer. This is the from now on. From now I'm not going to live according to the flesh. I'm not going to live this glandular living, this sensuality, this debauchery that Peter calls. I'm not going to live like that anymore. I'm not going to live selfishly. No, from now on, there's a new culture. And it's the culture of righteousness. Not that you do everything perfectly. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, you're sensitive to the Spirit's moving. And when you do sin, you confess and you repent and you move, you move on. And then he, what happens then, this culture of righteousness begins to emerge. And then it leads to several other cultures. The next one he mentions there is the culture of prayer. Look at verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. In other words, you're, Jesus is going to come back and he's going to make, he's going to, he's going to set up shop. He's going to, he's going to handle the business. The end of all things is, is near. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. We could literally preach five sermons on these different cultures and maybe we should. A culture of righteousness, now a culture of prayer. We just came off a pretty long started uh, Started the year with a pretty long series on prayer. You can go back and listen to that. But here's what he's saying in this passage. The end of all things is at hand. Like, there's no time to waste time. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded as you pray. This is what this is literally translated as. For the sake of your prayers is what he's saying. In the context of your prayers, be self-controlled and sober-minded. What he's saying is, be serious, church, about your praying. This is your main spiritual weapon. Be serious about your praying. Prayer is not something that we just do at the dinner table or, or, or that we uh, just do in, in, a, in a church service or you just do in your small group. Families should pray together. Husband and wife should pray together. It should be the normal response 
when things are difficult, when I'm anxious, what, is, what, is, what does Paul say? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, in everything, with prayer and supplications, make your request known to God. So you're looking for a parking space? Let, let your request be made known to God. You don't know if you got enough money to cover the, the bills to the end of the month? Don't, don't be anxious about it, but in everything. This should be the air that we breathe as a Christian. And so many Christians that I know, me included, sometimes live a deflated and discouraged life because we've left our main weapon at home. We've forgotten to breathe. Be serious about your praying. Be sober-minded. Be, be alert about your praying. You know it's so easy not to pray. It's so easy when you get the bad news. This is me, chief of sinners up here, to go through figuring out how I can fix this. If I call this people and I move some money here and I think I can take out a no interest loan here and, and, I, and I think I could call these people and then I could, I could go in and I could, I could do this and, and, and immediately my brain just goes to moving around. And Father God's up there, Luke, son, just, just ask me about it. I was setting up for Camp Fuego at Bethany whatever week it is, nine, whatever, starts next week. And I was setting up yesterday, and it was late, and we'd been working for so long, and it's 5 o'clock, and I'm up in a scissor lift, and I'm trying to dial in this projector. It is not working. I am so in the flesh, I'm about to throw this projector across the room. I am just, I'm just not happy I'm there. And I've been just stuck up there waiting on the projector to work, and I'm going over just mentally your notes and what I'm going to be preaching. And I just felt spirits say, Luke, have you prayed about it? I was like, well, no, Lord, I haven't prayed about it. This is a projector. You plug in the HDMI cord, you send it a signal, and it's supposed to work. And it didn't work. And I wasn't going to pray about it. In 30 minutes, I'm just uh, strategizing and doing, reset the computer, reset the, reset, we just get a new cord. We just, we tried everything. And I just, Holy Spirit, just, you know, it just sits on you a little bit. Look, have you prayed about it? This is a little wrestling with God I was doing in my own mind. And after 30, maybe 45 minutes of it, I said, all right, Lord, I, I'm out of answers. Would you make this projector work? And I looked and it didn't work. And then I was like, well, just forget it. And I unplugged one of the cords I'd plugged in. It came on just perfectly. And I could just feel the smile of Father in heaven saying, Luke, would you just pray about it? This is the greatest invitation we have, church, is just to bring things to God in prayer. No thing too big, no thing too little. Just bring it to him with this childlike faith. We should have a culture of prayer. Be alert in our praying. Be serious in our praying. Be intentional in our praying. Self-controlled in your praying. Because your flesh isn't going to want to pray. Your flesh isn't going to want to get the family together with all the chaos and pray. Your flesh isn't going to go grab your spouse's hand and say, let's pray about it. Your flesh isn't going to want to hang out with the friends and them share something and you give them advice and stop praying and, and, and not pray. Your flesh isn't going to want to do that. That's why we have to be self-controlled in our praying. Isn't that amazing? That's a good place for amen. Isn't that amazing? Okay, come on, church. Let's go. For the sake of your prayers, as God's people, you have a crucial role on earth 
Remember, we studied this back in 1 Peter 2. I explained to you that as priests, priests are people who release God's power in the situations. We talked about intercessory faith. Church, you have a vital role. You are the conduit of God's power to the rest of the world. John Wesley says, God does nothing on earth except an answer to prayer. All God's power on earth is bound up in you. And that's a bit of an overstatement. But it's getting at something the Bible talks so much about that we have a vital role. We've been invited to participate with God to move mountains through prayer. This week when we were praying, we're going around the room praying at 845 this morning and three, maybe four different people started praying and thanking God for people who have come to faith, who didn't get raised in Christian homes, who should not have come to faith. But God's at work, and this is what prayer does. If we as God's people don't pray for the city that we live in, that our city finds Jesus, then who's going to pray for them? The lost neighbors that live next to you who didn't grow up in a Christian home, who aren't connected to a local church, how are they going to come to faith? Who's going to pray for them if you don't pray for them? God has put you in their life for this very reason, that you would be the conduit of heaven's power, of the kingdom of God, through you unto them, through prayer. We need church, we need to be sober-minded and alert, on guard, ready to intercede, self-controlled, that we schedule some of our praying, that we pray in an organized way, that I'm going to pray at morning, noon, and night, or morning and night or whatever your schedule is some of you have prayer cards i called my mom this week she was rewriting out her prayer cards as a way to keep these prayer requests on her attention span right in front of her and she says it helps me when i write it out i love that whatever you need to do you need to set an alarm on a phone set an alarm every hour as the alarm goes off every hour during when you're awake you can just pray just real quick lord my kids or, or my church or, 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 or my neighbors or, or this thing and the sickness, we can, we can become people of prayer. We do it in an organized way, an organic way, as you learn to walk and be sensitive to the Spirit's leading. You'll strike up conversations you wouldn't have. You'll call people that, you sh- that you're not going to see that day because God brings them in your heart and you begin to pray for them and reach out to them. This is how it works, that we would have a culture of prayer. Man, so much more we could say. we got to move on. A culture of love. In verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. This is the second time in this little letter that Paul has said this. He says in chapter 1, verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a brotherly love, love one another earnestly. Earnestly was used in the Greek language to speak of a horse who ran as fast as he could to the point of exhaustion. When you would go to buy a horse, that was a term that you would even use. How earnest is he? Meaning, and he really get it. Is this a lazy horse? Is this a couch potato of a horse? Or can he really get it? earnestly to the point of exhaustion and i love this because any church that you go to anywhere in america any christian church would say yeah man we love we love each other 
But that love is so weak and so flimsy that one little offense happens or even a perceived offense and the relationship is severed and you're talking to someone else about them and you're talking about that other person at the church in front of your kids and your kids are trying to understand, oh, this is a gospel that doesn't really work. Love one another earnestly to the point of exhaustion. Peter doesn't just call us to love. He calls us to love to the point of exhaustion. In our love, Christians, friends, we should have greater stamina than anyone you've ever met of the world. You know those people in your life that are hard to love? Some of them are in your own very own like extended family. Some people that are hard to love. Maybe you work with people who are hard to love. Maybe you're in a small group or an MC with someone who's hard to love. Love them. Love them earnestly from a pure heart because this is what the gospel does. How many times did you hear the gospel or, or, or sit in a church service? How many sins did you commit against a holy God and yet his love towards you was earnest? It was not flimsy. Even now, you don't make a mistake or, or blow it or fail. And God says, oh, gosh, I've just had it enough with Luke. Man, that is the fifth time this week that he has blown it. That would be flimsy love. This is earnest love. Love to the point of exhaustion. People who have different political views. People who have different ethnicity, ethnicity, people who have weird quirks, and, and people who are just weird. And if you don't know any weird people, you're the weird person. And the small group is side texting you afterwards, like, I know he's weird, but let's love him. Then he says, love covers a multitude of sins. This doesn't mean it hides it. I love this so much. This means that the power of love is so great that ignorance and immaturity won't stop me from loving you. You can act a fool. You can malign me. You can misunderstand me. You can come against me. You can offend me. Now, this doesn't mean I'm a doormat, and this doesn't mean I ha don't have the right boundaries, but from a pure heart, I can still love difficult people because love covers a multitude of sins. It doesn't hide it. What it says is I'm not going to let that little offense sever our relationship. You remember when you, when you, when you had a baby? And, I mean, baby cuddles are the best. They are just the best, especially if a baby's sleeping the best you know when the baby's not the best is when they have blowouts in a diaper and that's when you hand them back to your mom to the mom you're like hey oh yeah my quotient for baby cuddling is over now and Ashley's like you're the father you have to change the diaper okay our love has gotten so flimsy in the church that if someone doesn't have all their stuff together we we would never say it but we distance ourselves from them as if they were still covered in filth that Christ himself paid for. This is 
This is what it means to have a culture of love. Listen, I do not have a vision of building a church that would be several thousand people, some mega church. You know me, you know church planting is my thing. You know I want to plant as many churches as we can plant. But let me tell you, church, if we start loving like this, you're not going to have enough chairs. Because this is so otherworldly that I'm not going to let this little fence. This is what Grudem says, a theologian. Where love abounds in a fellowship of Christians, many small offenses, even some really big ones, are readily overlooked and forgotten. But where love is lacking, every word is viewed with suspicion. Every action is liable to misunderstanding. And conflicts abound to Satan's perverse delight. Satan is like, oh, we got him again. He forgot to shake his hand. He forgot to hug him. He forgot to call him when his, when his extended family member passed. He, he forgot to do this. And now I'm going to let this lack of culture of love, this flimsy love, I'm going to let it be broken. And I'm going to let it actually divide fellowship from one of God's sons to another one of God's sons. And Peter is reminding us this is not the way of God. Jesus hanging on the cross. Is there not a better definition of love that covers a multitude of sins? Again, we got to move on. We could do a whole sermon on that. A culture of hospitality. Look at verse 9. A culture of righteousness and prayer and love. Verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Peter not holding any punches. You got to live this righteous way of life. When you're radically changed and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, now you have this new access to heaven and you can pray all the time. And when you pray all the time, you're going to have more of God's heart. And when you have more of God's heart, you're going to start loving other people. And you're going to even have to love other people who aren't like you. This is what hospitality is. Hospitality is not you opening your home for a baby shower or the afternoon brunch. Hospitality literally means phileo. It's made up of two words. Phileo, which means love, and xenos, which means stranger. It is literally the love of stranger. It is the love of the person you don't know. It's the love of the person whose culture you don't understand. Hospitalities, the act or process. It's from Alan Hirsch process whereby the identity of the stranger is transformed into that of a guest the primary impulse of hospitality is to create a safe and welcoming place where a stranger can be converted into a friend the practice of hospitality to strangers very frequently hopes to create relationships and friendships between those who were previously either alienated or at enmity or simply unknown to one another and as you reach out with an olive branch of hospitality and you welcome them into a relationship with you. They're not just a stat anymore. They're not just defined by whatever their struggle is or whatever their skin color is or whatever their issues are. The world loves to define us by our issues because if, if, if we can label you and put an issue on you, then we don't have to see you. And Peter says, that cannot happen in the culture of the kingdom of God. Everyone is created in the likeness of God. Everyone Everyone who's ever been born, created in the likeness of God, bears his image, also wrecked by sin, 
alienated from God. They don't even know the culture they're supposed to be chasing after. There's a little flicker of light maybe even in their heart and their mind. And we're supposed to be the Jesus in the skin to them. This is why Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan. You go to the parable of the Good Samaritan? You remember this, that the, the Jewish person was, was, was on the road and he gets hurt and injured and beat up by robbers and he's on the main road that the priests pass by. This is where they would live and they would go to service and he's there and he's hurting and, and the pastors come by. The worship pastor comes by, no, he's not going to do anything, can't have time. Then the mission pastors come by, oh no, can't do, can't do anything. And then, and, 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 and then the youth pastor comes by, no, no, I can't, can't do anything. And there he is. He just laying there hurting and you know the hero of the story is a samaritan who would have never ever 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 in their culture done life with this person they wouldn't have helped them they wouldn't have nodded to them on the street they wouldn't have brought them a meal they would literally have done nothing for them and jesus says you know how the way it works in my kingdom hospitality the love of stranger that samaritan picks him up takes him to get cared for leaves extra money invest in him how do we learn to practice hospitality the way that jesus did well we got to go back to the beginning we got to have a heart of jesus first Jesus loved and accepted people for who they were. They could drop their mask and religiosity and performance, and they could just receive unconditional love for him, from him. This is what Jesus did. This is how we are the very temple of God, that we, Christians, and when we Christians get together in a church, we are these portals of grace. You don't see grace anywhere else in the world. We're the portals of grace. So when people walk in, you're like, well, this feels different. These people seem to really care for me and love me and they're excited to see me. Portals of grace. God's hospitality is extended to the lost and the broken and the needy and the often stigmatized people. It's not extended to the people you like. Jip, an author, writes this, the divine hospitality comes to us in the person of Jesus, the divine host who extends God's hospitality to sinners, outcasts, strangers, and draws them and us into friendship with God. God's embrace of humanity into friendship with him is the ultimate form of welcoming the stranger. Aren't you glad that while you were strangers and aliens and even enemies with God, that that did not stop the love of Jesus from him descending into heaven and growing in the likeness of man and perfection, fully God and fully man together, that he would be a sheep who is silent before his shearers, that he would go to the cross, that he would shed his blood for you by his very stripes, we then become healed, right church? Can you see the hospitality of God and aren't you thankful for it, amen? Then why are we not hospitable people? When's the last time that you shared a meal with someone who was not like you, different religion, different ethnicity, different socioeconomic class, different education status. When's the last time, friends? This is the culture that, that we should be about of righteousness and prayer and love and hospitality. Man, we don't have time to go through it. I got so many, there's a, 
I'm going to quit saying this. I'm just going to preach, all right? Y'all get up and leave when you want to leave. <clears throat> In Luke's gospel, there's about 20 different occurrences of Jesus doing this very thing. His ministry was over meal with a stranger. This is just, this is, this is just what he did. You can't even say that hospitality was one of Jesus' strategies. It was the only strategy he had. This was the strategy. You want to know how we're going to reach the world for Christ? We're moving so far into post-Christendom. It's not going to be evangelism with sandwich boards and megaphones. It's not even going to be telling people how sinful they are. It's going to be loving them with the love of Jesus, inviting them into our homes. In Luke 5, Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners in the home of Levi. In Luke 7, Jesus is anointed at the home of Simon the Pharisee. You remember that during a meal. In Luke 9, Jesus feeds the 5,000. In Luke 10, Jesus eats at the home of Martha and Mary. In Luke 11, Jesus condemns the Pharisees and teachers of law around the meal. In Luke 14, Jesus had a meal when he urges people to invite the poor to their meals rather than their friends. In Luke 19, Jesus invites himself to dinner with Zacchaeus. In Luke 22, we have the count of the Last Supper. And in Luke 25, the risen Christ has a meal with the two disciples at Emmaus. And then later, eats fish with the disciples in Jerusalem. Over a meal, over a meal, over a meal. In Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. He ate with tax collectors and sinners and fishermen. He included them and welcomed them. Those that are turned away by the religious culture of the day, he humanized those they were often dismissed as outsiders, and he extended the welcome of God to them. The Pharisees used boundary markers to exclude and dehumanize. They even called the Gentiles dogs, refusing to acknowledge their presence as people before Yahweh. They were lesser people, they thought. But Jesus tore these boundary markers down. He replaced them with this radical welcome that still reverberates through the world today. And unlike our culture's hospitality, which is extended to those that we like and those that would probably bless us back, I scratch your back if you can scratch mine. Jesus' hospitality was so scandalously, scandalously unconditional. Conditional hospitality just crystallizes the borders and things that separate us. Unconditional hospitality deconstructs them. Church. We are called to unconditional hospitality. How do we do this? Well, first, it starts in the church community. In this very, we should be the most welcoming place there is. But let me be honest, in my experience, this is not the church, many of the churches I served at. I was a youth pastor for a decade at three different churches. And I remember one of my, one of my kids, Jeremy, came and he, Jeremy wanted, uh, wanted his cousin to come to Christ. And I remember Jeremy was so young in his faith, but he loved his cousin. They were like brothers, and we started praying. We were praying for his parents, too. We were praying for his brother. We were praying for everybody. Jeremy said, would you pray for my cousin? He's my best bud. He does not know God. He does not know God. We prayed. Man, we were praying for him. We were praying for him. We're praying for him. We had a disciple now, then he comes. And you could tell he didn't belong there, and he was mad that I didn't let him bring his cigarettes and whatever else. But he came. And, you know, Disciple Now Sunday, we all gather up in the sanctuary and everybody's wearing their, you know, ugly shirts and whatever it is. And it's just how it works. It's the, what it is. And you get out there. And 
Corey was there. Jeremy's cousin. And he had a baseball hat on. And the, one of the churches I served at, really every other church I've served at except for this one. They were so legalistic. And one deacon in his 70s came over and literally cussed him out for wearing a hat in the sanctuary. I looked over at Corey and his face was falling on big old alligator tears coming down his face. It took, you know, I'm not a violent man, but it took everything I had not to pick up that hymnal out of that thing and just whack that deacon across the face. Like, what are you talking about? This guy comes to church for the first time and you care about his flipping hat? I've got a dozen stories like that. And I told myself if I was ever a part of starting a church and their leadership, we wouldn't care what people wear. We wouldn't care if you came with a hat on. Church, this has to start with us. We've got to be the most hospitable place in the world. Starts in the church next at your dinner table. And if you say, hey, my home is not ready for guests, look, take them out to eat, go get coffee. You can't do anything. Go sit in front of coffee on the red. You don't even have to buy coffee. Just sit out in front. They've got tables. You can invite them there. Tell them you don't drink coffee. Let them pay for their own. It's fine. Okay, it's fine. I might have done that a couple times. <laughs> Wi-Fi still works too, just FYI. Your table is that portal of grace. Some of your friends you're reaching, they would never step in, in, into a church ever. But they'll come to coffee. You don't even have to do that. Just see them at work. Here's a little trick you do, especially Southern hospitality. Let's, let's use Southern hospitality for our advantage. You go to people and say, hey, man, what'd you do last weekend? And they're going to tell you all the things they did. And then because of Southern hospitality, they got to ask you what you did this weekend. And you say, you know what, I just stuff, I cut the grass. But let me tell you, I encountered Jesus. I went to church. And I would love to invite you to come to my church. Now, listen, there's a difference between an invite and a non-vite, okay? A non-vite is, hey, if you ever get a chance, come to my church sometime. That's a non-vite. You know why they're never going to come to your church? Because sometime is not on anyone's calendar. There's never a sometime. You got to invite them to a time. Hey, I would love for you to come to church with me Sunday at 10 a.m. As a matter of fact, if you'd like, I'll come pick you up and buy you a coffee this time, right? That's an invite. This is where hospitality begins. It, it begins on the church level, absolutely, but it's, it's through your table. It's through your life. It's, it's for your next one more. You know, we, we use the term 8 to 15, that all of us have about 8 to 15 people in our life, and we want to utilize and steward those relationships because they're the people who see us from the front row. They're the people who see past the makeup. and past, They're the people who see our life. They're on our front row. And we should be living a distinct life in front of them, the culture of righteousness, and, and we should, the culture of prayer. We should be praying for them and praying for them and praying for them, and we should be, we should be loving them. We should be hospitable to them. They see your life. You know what I love about camp? It's camp's opportunity for you to invite your one more to camp. Camp's opportunity for 
for you to reach out to, to people and come or a special event or a ladies meeting or men's night. It's just a great opportunity to say, hey, you know what? This is like, you know, we get together and, and we give away a bunch of door prizes and we sing some songs. We give T-shirts and all kind of, would you come to my ladies event? You invite you one more. I, I know this because even at church, almost every week someone comes up to me and say, hey, pastor, my one more is here today. Please don't suck. And please don't talk about money. If you can avoid those two things, I'm like, well, we're talking about money today. Um, bring it back next week, you know? <laughs> Culture of hospitality. Another thing from Alan Hirsch. People should be able to experience a foretaste of heaven from our families and our homes. Missional hospitality is a tremendous opportunity to extend the kingdom of God. We can literally eat our way into the kingdom of God. And I can get behind that. Both sides of that. Last, culture of service. Verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks as oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that everything in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. A culture of service. A culture of serving the body. Friends, if you've never told this, those of you who are believers in Jesus, you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you're gifted. He literally brings a supernatural working gift with, with him. Every believer has one. Some believers have several of them. I think God can dispense them as he wants to dispense them. We're all gifted. And you can read through, and there's a list of 12 to 15 different things in Scripture that are gifts of leadership and teaching and hospitality and, 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 and wisdom and generosity is one. Part of your joy and abundance and blessing, friends, are going to flow into your life as you pour your life into service. This is how the economy of God works. That unless you pour yourself out, you've got no room to be filled up again. You've got to keep pouring yourself out, and then you can be filled up again. And pouring yourself out, and you can be filled up again. And a matter of fact, this, this is going to bring you so much joy. When you start using your spiritual gifts to serve the body, so much joy flows into your life. He mentions just two categories here. One that speaks, they speak as oracles of God. Listen, I take what I do very seriously. You can ask my family on, Sunday, on Saturday nights. I'm no fun to be around because my brain is on the sermon the next day, and I'm thinking about it. As a matter of fact, there's a weightiness all week about it. Not, not a weightiness that's like constricts you, but just a burden that, that I want to honor God with what I say here. I want to say what lines up with God's word. I take it very seriously, but it's just not me who has a, a gift of communicating the word of God or as oracles of God, one who speaks on behalf of God. But look in the text, it says, whoever speaks. When you speak to each other, inside a church or not inside a church, you should speak as the oracles of God. You should use your words to bless and not to curse. You should use your words to build up and not to tear down. 
you should speak as oracles of God to each other. You should communicate in songs and hymns and spiritual songs, Paul reminds us. Something our church needs more of is people speaking the word of God to each other. I'm not supposed to be the only one, but every missional community leader and every DG leader that speaks and every time you serve in kids back there, you're speaking the oracles of God. I pray we are with the right words and with the right tone and from the heart filled up with gratitude to God and just joy just comes out all out. out what are you saying? First Corinthians 14 gives a vision of a church in small groups and in church services speaking to God, speaking the oracles of God, not giving advice, speaking the word of God. Listen, if you're not careful, and I've been this careful for a long time, I would, I would do, I, I've messed this up for a long time. I would sit down with a couple in premarital counseling, and I would give them all the advice that I'd ever read and learned, and some of it scriptural, some of it practical, about, about how, to, how to have a good marriage. And some of that's fine. But it's got to start with the words of God, not with your advice. Somebody comes to you and they're complaining about their work situation or how bad their boss is or whatever struggle. Speak the very words of God to them. You know how we know the words of God? They're written in this book. We can use God's word to encourage each other. Isn't that amazing? Sometimes it's reminding them of a promise. Romans 8, 28. God's going to work everything together for good. Now, don't, that's a bad one to use in the midst of, like, trauma. Don't use that in the midst of, of that. Maybe afterwards. When someone's having a discouraging day, the words of Philippians, I'm convinced of this, that God will complete the work that he's begun in you. That's a great encouragement to my heart. I preach that verse to myself every day. When I feel like I'm not doing as good as I should as a pastor, not leading as good as, good as I should, I go, Luke, God's going to complete the work that he's begun in you. He absolutely is. Sometimes you're just reminding people of the, all the things that I said this morning on the screens, that you are loved by God, that you are cherished as far as the, the heavens are above the earth. We can't get away from the love of God. The oracles of God. Not that I claim to be God. I always say it sensitively. This is what God's word says. Others of you serve. Those of you serve, most of our church serves. We're not the 80, 20, we're 20% do 80% of the work. No, we're the, we're, you serve. Some of you serve on two teams, three teams, four teams. I remember we went to staff meeting about a year ago and we're just talking about different people and who's serving. We're up in Broken Bow and uh, Kyle and Kirsten Bryant were new to our church. And, and I think Kirsten was on four teams and she just kept saying yes to people. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Y'all gotta, y'all gotta let that girl decide what she wants to do. You're going to burn somebody. Four teams, that's a lot. This is the culture of our church, that we want to serve. And you should want to serve. But take it seriously. When you're back there teaching the kids, take seriously what Jesus is doing through you. Do you know how many things, for those of you who brought your one more to church, and I've brought some of my one more to church before, and I've seen some of them come to faith. Do you know, do you know how many links in the chain it takes just for that person to sit in here and hear the gospel? One, it takes somebody praying them, praying for them, and then another person hearing, and then, then there's a group of guys that got here this morning about 7.30, and they unloaded two 24-foot trailers out there, and they set everything up that you see. And a lot that you didn't see. 
and they go back there and the kids and they set all that thing up and then and then and then other groups get here and they get first impressions to greet people and hand them and connect them and and, and then then there's the prayer team that gathers and we're praying that we'd have the right spiritual atmosphere and that God would do the work that that, that only he can do and then then the people in the kids ministry they've been studying and prepping their hearts and I, I saw uh a lady new to our church, we baptized her a couple of weeks ago. I saw her in the hallway uh, last time we had service two weeks ago, and I, she looked exhausted. She had her kid shirt on. I was like, do you serve kids today? She's like, yeah, first time. I was like, how'd it go? She's like, I'm exhausted. I was like, what age did you have? Two and three-year-olds. There were, there were a thousand of them. Because if you get three three-year-olds, it might as well be a thousand. It's just what it is, right? When you're serving kids, you're serving as, as, as unto the Lord, as if Jesus was doing it through you. Our setup team that sets these chairs up, our assimilation team that follows after, our staff team that's here doing a myriad of things, going to gather it even, even this afternoon and tomorrow. We're going to pray for these things that you're around and pray. You know how much goes into this? So that you can invite your one more and they can come and sit right here and they can hear the word of God in a distraction-free environment? Friends, we need to have a culture of service. I'm happy to help. Let me wrap up. The last verse. If you can't tell, I've loved studying this passage this week. God has worked me up and down. So much conviction and repentance. So much beauty of the gospel. He finishes, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. That in everything. In your righteousness and in your prayer and in your love and in your hospitality and in your service, that God may be glorified. In everything, that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. When you see amen in Scripture, or in some traditions, people shout it out from the crowd while the preacher's preaching. This is not the tradition. I wish you would a little more. I'm trying to, trying to get you there. Amen is your stamp of approval. It's, it's what Mary said to the angel when the angel came and said, you're going to carry the Christ child. She said, may it be done to me as you have said. Amen is your stamp of saying, I commit my life to this. I approve this. This is truth, and I'm taking it and planting it into my heart and in my mind. Amen. Amen. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I'm going to close by just pointing out that this is all built on the truth of the resurrection. That's where Peter starts if you go back to chapter 1. Peter really believed the resurrection, that if the tomb is empty, then anything was possible. The resurrection would be the hope that pervades every thought. Church people give it only a passing glance. Maybe at Easter and we dress up and wear our pastels and our hats and all the things. But Peter didn't give it a glancing thought. He, it, was, it was on the top of his mind and in the depth of his heart and the tip of his tongue in this letter. He builds every dimension of the Christian life on the resurrection. It should be in every sermon we preach, the resurrection. If we were going to subtitle this letter, I would call it the epistle of the resurrection. 
Because again, if the tomb is empty, then anything is possible. That no marriage is too wrecked to be restored and no life too sinful to be forgiven and no person too far and too hard to be changed and no addict that has gone too far to be renewed in the life of Jesus. Nothing is out of the realms of God's grace reaching them. Nothing. Because if the tomb is empty, anything is possible. Do you believe that? Have you based your whole life and hope on it? That it's the power of real change, the power that brought Jesus up out of the grave is the power that transforms your life and the power that resides in your life after you trust Christ. The only way you'll stop sinning and have a culture of righteousness is by believing in the resurrection of Jesus. It's the only way you start leveraging your life for his glory and the good of everyone that you come in contact with, that you really believe it. Friend, have you yielded your life to the glory of Jesus? Saying to him, no more is my life going to be about me anymore. Lord, I'm going I'm to submit and bring my home to you and hospitality, my time to you, my talents to you, my treasure to you. Lord, I want to make you the Lord. You're, you're not my good po- co-pilot. I, I wanna, and I'm not going to give you the wheel when things get rough. I, I want you to guide the whole thing. That you wake up every day and say, Lord, my will for your life today, my will for your life. Every broken projector, every setback, and every breakthrough. All of it to you. You may not want know what God really wants you to do with his life, and that's fine. He'll tell you. Right now, you can just lay your pride on the altar. Lay your life before him. Rededicate your life to him and say, God, my life's all yours. All of it. I want to see people pass from death into life. It should be what we live for, to see people pass from death into life. And God has placed us as his mouthpiece right right next to them. They're our neighbors. We work with them. We go to school with them. We play ball with them. He sent you to be a portal of grace to them, to give them a little foretaste of what heaven looks like. Let me pray for us. If you pray silently wherever you're at, we're going to have communion in a minute, but I just want us to pray. Holy Spirit, would you do what only you can do? We got so many in this room that are so good at playing religious games, and we know when to stand and sit and clap. We know, we know all the things, but we, we've not been filled with you. So today, God, would you do what only you can do in this room? Some people in this room have been running the race and they've been running hard after you and they're tired and they're weary. And I pray your grace would fall over them just like, like a cup of cold water, like, like AC in June. Or would you just surround them with your grace? Others of them, they've been so beat up just the brokenness around them, the struggle they're walking through, the sickness, the betrayal, the, just the dysfunction around them, even in the name of God. Lord, would you remind them of your invitation? Come to me, all who are weak, weary, heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you. Others in this room, they've just been playing religious games. 
there's never been a time in their life where they've stepped across the line of faith and trusted you as their Lord and Savior. Lord, would you, through your spirit, would you lead them to do that now? Would today be the day of salvation for them? I don't know what else needs to happen in this room. Holy Spirit, you do. Do what only you can do in our hearts. Reconcile things, break addictions. We're going to have a prayer team in the back. Maybe you've got a lost son or daughter that you want to go just partner with someone in prayer. Maybe, maybe you just want to go grab one of our, our prayer team and say, hey, will you pray for me, for my neighbor, just, just for an opportunity this week that I might, that I might just point them to Jesus. Will, will, you, will you pray for me, for my dad or my mom that's not a believer? Maybe some of you, your spouse is, is one of those people that have been hurt. They're not, they're not, they're not here this morning. They, they've been so hurt, they're not, coming, they're not coming back unless God does something. Maybe you just grab a prayer partner and say, would you just pray for me? Church, if we're going to have a culture of prayer, we've got to be able to pray here. Lord, do what you need to do in our hearts this morning. As we take communion in a minute, Lord, I pray that we remember your love for us. A love that was not flimsy, but it was earnest. Through your stripes, your very stripes on the cross, we find healing today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The prayer team's in the back. We're going to take up communion when you're ready. There's no rush. I want you to hear from God this morning. And if you need to go, go. But I want us to rush past this. I feel like God's at work. Communion is open at our church. You don't have to be a member of our church, but you do have to be part of God's family. So if that's you, you're part of God's family. It's been a time where you've placed your faith and trust in him. I invite you to communion. We've got communion servers all over the place. I'll be in the back. If the altar's open. We don't, we don't have a cushy altar. It's just a gym floor. great power and physical posture of just lowering yourself and getting on your knees and crying out to God for something. I invite you to do that. We're not going to rush. If you need to leave, leave. I mean that with no judgment. If you've got something you got to be at. God, do what only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen.